Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers is a bi-weekly podcast presented by Partners in Promise. Partners in Promise is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting the rights of military children in special education. Large organizations like the military have learned to love the status quo. But at Partners in Promise, we believe in being disruptive as we have learned that having easy conversations rarely leads to real change in special education or in the military. We are storytellers who aren't afraid to get a little disruptive. Disruptive Storytelling is sponsored by the Modern Military Association of America. Founded in 1993, MMAA is the nation's largest nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing fairness and equality for the LGBTQ military and veteran community. Learn more about what the changemakers at MMAA are up to at modernmilitary.org. Welcome back to Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers. My name is Jennifer Barnhill, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Partners in Promise. Today, I am joined by Dr. Tom Galvin. Dr. Galvin is a professor at the U.S. Army War College and has taught courses in organizational change and communication. Dr. Galvin is also the managing editor of the Talking About Organizations podcast that discusses classic text on organizational theory, in case you want a deep dive. We will put his information in the show notes. He was also featured on an episode of the podcast where he examined C. Fred Alford's book, Whistleblowers, Broken Lives and Organizational Power. So why are we having an academic appear on a podcast about stigma? Well, in episode two, Dr. Anna Shiet talked about the ways to combat stigma. These methods included protest, education, and connection. It would be a disservice to only talk about stigma without giving you, the audience, a way forward. And that is why we have gathered experts to help you understand how systemic change happens and to help equip you with the tools you need to combat it yourself. And that is why we have Dr. Galvin on the podcast today. It is also important to note that the views expressed by Dr. Galvin are his alone and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or the US government. Let's hear a little bit more about Dr. Galvin and his research. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast, Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers. Today, I am joined by Dr. Tom Galvin. Hi, Tom. How are you doing today? Hi, how are you? Good. Welcome to the show. We're really excited to have uh, Dr. Galvin here to talk a little bit about organizational change. You might be wondering why we're diving into that type of topic when we're generally talking about stigma. Well, we're here to find out and see a little bit more about what, how those two topics could be related. Would you mind giving us a little bit of an introduction as to your background? I started the show with a little bit of who you are and what you're working on right now, but what is your military connection? 
I, uh, I'm a retired colonel, so uh, I served 29 years in the uh, the United States Army, and for a good chunk of that, I was working at uh, some of the uh, the higher level staff. So I worked at a combatant command headquarters, uh, U.S. European Command. I was at U.S. Africa Command from the beginning. I served in a service component command, and I was working uh, as one of the special assistants to the commanders of those organizations. So I got a I got a pretty good idea of how the enterprise works. I came to the War College, actually, I had been at the War College multiple times, but I, I came back as a faculty member in uh, 2011. I, I started my doctoral program in organizational change and organizational learning and uh, finished that. And then when I retired from the service, I was hired on as a faculty member. And I work on the leadership side of things, but also on the management side. Uh, so when we're talking about management, I'm talking about the big practices of trying to bring programs, budgets, those sorts of things. You know, how do we uh, how do we do that? How do we make our programs work? And, and how do we implement change? Because uh, change is so much a part of what we do at the enterprise level. What I do is I teach uh, courses in change strategic communication and uh, defense management. That's a pretty broad, you know, broad range. One other thing that I do, which really is kind of helpful is I do my own podcast, or I should say I, I'm part of another podcast called Talking About Organizations. And Talking About Organizations is basically where we get together and talk about uh, classic texts of organization theory and management science. When we discuss this topic of uh, organizational change in the context of stigma, there's uh, quite a few episodes we did not too long ago that uh, might have might might be worth exploring a bit. Yeah, well, well, we'll have to link to some of those episodes in our show notes so people can can listen to some of those. So you know, when we're talking about you know digging in and why these topics are related, you know, I stumbled upon some work that you, you worked on the leading change in military organizations, a primer for senior leaders. You worked on that with, at the war college. And, you know, when we look at how programs in the DOD operate, how we evaluate them, we first have to kind of look at in general, zoom out a little of how organizations work and, and how we define problems. Cause as family members, we know we feel, feel those problems. We feel an effect, you know, and we might define a problem a little bit differently. So, so can you kind of walk us through some basic ideas of organizational change that might relate to this? So people who maybe don't understand what some of the things you just mentioned could get a little bit of a 101 of one of your classes. Well, here's one of the things that I think uh, frustrate a lot of people, and I've run into it, into it myself. So you have sort of like the big organizational level and you have the individual level. And like you said, individuals, especially when we're talking about human, human element or a human dimension kind of things, we feel the individual problem. We feel the individual circumstances or whatever. And, and so then from there, the enterprise just seems to be this huge, impersonal, totally detached from our reality as an individual member. Now, on the flip side, when you're standing at the enterprise level, I can pretty much rest assure everybody that uh, just about anybody who works at the enterprise level knows exactly what is going on at the individual level. But it's really, really hard to try to come up with, a, you know, say a program or a solution or some sort of a, a change effort to fix something that's fair across an entire three million person enterprise. 
and at the same time address every individual circumstance. This is a tension. This is a natural tension that happens. And uh, despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of people working human dimension issues really want to do the right thing, it actually gets really tough to try to balance you know, how, what makes sense from an enterprise perspective and down to the, uh, to the individual perspective. Some of the things that get the most frustrating is when the enterprise decides to do something and it just, it makes perfect sense to the stakeholders, to Congress, to the national leaders. But then by the time it comes down, you know, the information about what is going to change, how we're going to do things differently, whatever gets down to the lower level, it doesn't always make sense. That's not, that, that's not a, a, that's a hard thing to, to overcome because you're really talking about two very different contexts. We routinely address and discuss um, all sorts of human dimension topics at the War College in our programs because they're very, very important. We think about things like the sexual harassment and assault, uh, things like diversity, inclusion, things like suicide prevention. There's a lot of human dimension that's built into the, uh, the armed forces where we're, we're trying to balance, you know, find that, that sweet spot between satisfying the mission and taking care of the people, making sure the people are ready for war. And so these topics, these issues, these challenges that we face are something that we talk about quite a lot. It's very important to us that we try to make sure we get the the people taken care of. I can completely understand it's complex, you know, looking at things from an individual level and organizational level or enterprise level, as you said. If we could maybe walk through an example, I can kind of set the stage for what our families maybe are experiencing, and maybe you can walk us through how you would approach defining a problem and then walking it through in a way maybe you would with your students or just in general as an exercise. In our organization at Partners in Promise, we're largely focused on helping improvements with the Exceptional Family Member Program is one example. Our families report feeling stigmatized when they move, you know, they're worried that it could impact their career negatively or that their child, if they're self-identified as having a a special need or exceptional need, that that could hurt them down the road. So we're hearing that our family members are concerned about the program that is there to help them to make sure that they receive the services and supports that they're about to head to a new location and we wanna make sure they can be covered. But our families are reporting that there's a problem. They're not sure if they could trust the system. And, and so that's kind of the, the way that our families are presenting this issue. But, you know, on the flip side, on the enterprise side, it's the people, you know, a lot of human beings are involved there and there's a lot of moving parts. Each service branch does things a little bit differently. When you, and you don't even have to touch upon specifically the exceptional family member program, if you have a better example in mind that we could walk through, but how would you begin to look at a problem and define it. Because I think that there's a tendency for the individual to define a problem one way and maybe that enterprise to define it another way. Do you have an example of, of that that you, you might be able to speak to? This might apply to the uh, EFMP, but uh, it certainly applies to a lot of programs. One of the challenges that we have, obviously in the installation management side of things, in terms of base support, there's been considerable efforts to try to ensure that every single base, installation, camp, whatever, has common levels of service, which includes equitable access to a program and 
the equitable experience of the program. This is kind of how I get into, uh, you know, when I, when I say that programs need to be fair, equitable, and just, that's kind of what I'm talking about. So you take a program like EFMP, we have decided as an enterprise that this is something that needs to be prioritized. We need to put resources against it. We've decided this is a just service to provide to soldiers to ensure the care of the family. Now, that part of it is pretty straightforward. There's no question at the enterprise this is, this is something that is supported. So then the question becomes a matter of access and experience. How we take what is an individual bad experience and try to unpack it and understand how to what extent it is systemic. So from access, and, and again, I'm not going to talk specifically EFMP, but just imagine any service that the army promises or the military promises to service members and families. And we all kind of know that as we go from post to post, access to those services are different. We get a lot of discussions about childcare. Childcare is one of these uh, very, very important topics. The ability to uh, get access to child development centers so that service members can ensure the care of their children, especially, especially, but not exclusively if they're single parents or whatever. You know, so if access is different, then that's going to drive uh, a whole bunch of things where certain posts are going to wind up being avoided or, or what have you. There's, there's readiness implications to this. Now, the experience is another one, and I think that's where the stigma comes in. This is kind of part of the, uh, an issue with the program itself, maybe, but it's also an issue of, the, of kind of outside the program. If we're talking about stigma... We're talking potentially about, say, for example, the chain of command, somebody in the chain of command who is treating soldiers differently or the perception that the chain of command is treating soldiers differently because those soldiers who do not have EFMP are in some way preferred than uh, over those that do. You know, we can come up with all sorts of reasons why that might be, but, you know, from the perspective of the army that's providing this particular service, any variance of experience, that is the, the presence of inequality of treatment based on these things that the, that the government has decided is going to be provided. Now that's, that's definitely a problem and it's a problem that has to be resolved. But that gets to, you know, when we say that there's a problem, what we have to do is we have to make sure we're identifying where the problem lies. So from an access standpoint, like for example, if it's a problem that some get better access than others or too much variance from post to post. Now that's one that is probably a more programmatic one. We may have to get the proponent engaged and say, why do we see such variance? Why is this post unable to provide based on the demand? versus somebody else. If it's experience, now we're talking probably command climate. We're talking about you know, uh, these, these perceptions that uh, families are voicing, that is saying that there's a belief that people are gonna be treated differently. First step, of course, is gonna be to narrow down where is that perception coming from? Is it coming from because of work relationships? Is it because of social relationships, is there something from the base or, you know, the service providers that is fueling this concern? 
where is that perception coming from becomes kind of important because then that helps with identify is this a local problem or is this an enterprise problem you know obviously if it's a local problem then it's one that the garrison commander needs to resolve or you know somebody in the local post needs to resolve if it does show a systemic enterprise-wide problem then that's that's a different kind of a problem you're right about the complexity it's hard to it's going to be hard to pin these down and i suspect that you know when uh, sometimes if uh, somebody is complaining and they're getting questions of this sort coming back to them they're probably going to feel like they're on the defensive like almost being stigmatized for raising the issue you know what i mean and that's certainly not my experience it's never the intent there's the need to understand the source and the character of the problem and the kinds of things that i'm talking about are things that well you know if i was to go in and try to solve a problem you know of a of a of an army family service sort of a thing those are the very questions i would be starting with and then of course you know there's there's also the aspect of privacy and confidentiality that's uh, you know if that gets if that gets violated now there's a uh, there's a different issue so you know it's i think that's that's kind of the thing is you know to help what's the scope of the problem what's the character of it that really helps to try to figure out you know what would be the best way to approach solving it absolutely and i think that that's the rub so to speak is that defining this problem is is hard because it is so complex and it involves so many working parts one area of stigma that was brought up um, by one of our experts in episode two, talked about how stigma often is something that is anticipated. It's the anticipation of a behavior in someone else. So it's it's assuming that the discrimination will happen or the, the issue, the problem will happen even before you actually do experience the problem. And so that's, you know, another layer of complication. I know you mentioned that you you have examined issues like, you know, sexual assault and and that is often, you know, heard or discussed when we talk about topics like that where people are afraid of what could happen if they come forward. Not what happens when they do, but what could happen. And so I wonder when you're dealing with those types of issues is there any does it look any different when you're looking or, or examining those anticipation? Uh, how do you define that as a problem, the anticipation of a problem? <laughs> it's a hard question. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's a hard one, but it's a, but it's a good one because this gets to a different kind of a, of a class of services that should be, you know, that the enterprise does try to provide, for example, advocacy. Okay. So I'm going to talk in generalities because I don't know the inside of any of the specific programs. I just know generally that this is uh, this is the approach taken. You know, obviously the communications are out there in terms of retribution, mistreatment by those who come forward is is not tolerated, and there is a wholly understandable fear that that will happen by those who've, who who are going to or, or considering coming forward because it's a very very big step it's a it, there's a there's a lot involved in it now you know the enterprise of course has the responsibility to ensure privacy confidentiality protection from those sorts of things so there's again getting to the access and the experience are there sufficient trustworthy advocates like we 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 established for example sexual harassment and assault experts to be located at unit level 
And there's, there's every expectation that they are available and ready and trained to be able to serve as sort of like that first uh, point of contact sort of, a, sort of a thing. If they're not fulfilling those responsibilities, or if they're like, for example, you have people who are in those positions and are, but are not properly trained or seem incapable of being able to fulfill those responsibilities. That's one thing. The other is uh, communicating that, you know, like uh, the, like, you know, certainly just about every post I've been in since the big harassment scandals in the 2010s, those individuals uh, have, you know, the, the local unit individuals have been generally very open communicators and trying to reassure everybody in the unit that, hey, I'm here, I can help you navigate, you know, everything that I can navigate and try to allay those concerns. But there's no question that uh, those, you know, the anticipation, you know, what you say is about anticipating, it's a very, very difficult thing to, uh, to overcome. The system has to demonstrate that it is trustworthy, I think is the best way to say it. If the system is not demonstrating that it is trustworthy, then something's got to be fixed within the system, because that was precisely why all of these uh, things were put in. So again, you know, looking at it, access, are you able to get the service that you need? Or are there uh, experiences that people are having that are going against what the, you know, the intent behind the, the response system is about? And from there, then, you know, we've got to find uh, the right advocate to help raise those issues so that the, uh, the garrison or the commander, whoever it is that is responsible for that, that area, can address it. It is hard. But I think, again, making sure that we understand how to articulate the problem, what kind of a problem it is, will help. And uh, it's especially helpful that we try to separate because I know these are emotional circumstances we're talking about, but to separate the emotion from what's really going on. Yeah. And that's, you know, often <laughs> we say this in the context of this podcast, that we know in the reality for families, it's very hard to do, uh, but it is, a, is essential to be able to find a solution and a way forward within this larger organization. So zooming out a little from one particular problem and, and looking and focusing at, you know, your studies and your, your expertise in looking at what solutions have historically within this larger enterprise worked well. In your um, paper, you talk about top-down and bottom-up solutions. What are some examples of, of those maybe bottom-up solutions that families might be able to feel accessible or have experienced or observed? What have you found successful? I'm sure there's been examples in all areas, but <laughs> any, any of them come to mind? To be honest, if I was to take just about anything of a human dimension that, uh, that I, where I saw change, the best, most successful ones tended to be bottom up. I've I've seen plenty enough uh, attempts at top down change of a human dimension variety, and they're really really hard to do because you know the when you're at the enterprise level, you're trying to figure out what's fair and equitable across a rather massive enterprise, and it's also very very it, it takes a very long time to implement a major change. Uh, of a human dimension, you know, you're talking about, say, a new program to resolve some sort of a problem. 
Uh, just think about uh, how long it took for you know uh, the sexual harassment and assault. It took time to implement what would you know pretty much seem to be uh, pretty obvious. You know that's uh, that certain actions needed to be taken, but it takes time to create structures and takes time to do things from a top-down perspective and be able to implement it equitably across. You know, it's not it's not like all post camps and stations are equal. They're they're all very different environments. So a lot of the a lot of the better initiatives that I've seen have tended to be bottom up. The one uh, one comes to mind, but I I don't know the whole story of this. I only know the local side of it. And that was like, for example, here at the Army War College, when we first started to experience uh, uh, students being pulled out and deployed from you know from being a resident student, just you know they're in class three months into the into the course. And they're told they've got to go to Iraq, Whoa. <laughs> like 2003. And it was it was uh, obviously very last minute, very sudden, very disruptive. You know, not every place was <laughs> was really set up for that. You know, it's uh, obviously it's something we always are prepared to to do. But even no matter how prepared you are, it's still a shock when something like that happens because it was somewhat unexpected. The War College, just like every other post in the Army that was uh, grappling with this. They came up with uh, all sorts of programs, all sorts of activities, things to help get the, uh, the spouses and the families to feel like they hadn't been abandoned, you know, to make sure that they were taken care of. And uh, we created a separate seminar. It was literally a, a, like we had at the time, we had 20 seminars of students. And, and then we created this separate seminar that was all the spouses of deployed soldiers that they were treated, uh, treated as equals with all of the rest of the resident program so that we could kind of keep the morale going and, and keep everybody uh, keep everybody taken care of. It was, a, it was a very good initiative. Over time, I don't know the precise, uh, you know, the, the precise sequence, but basically, you know, the, these, uh, these same things being done all over the place in some way contributed to the idea that we needed to have sort of like a blue star or gold star. You know, this is uh, some sort of a more army-wide program to provide for the, the deployed personnel. So that's, uh, you know, again, I don't know the exact connection of, of what was done locally to the creation of that particular program, but that they were so very similar in function. It seems like there was, it, it, it seemed like it was a good bubble up. There was also... Um, initiatives when I was uh, stationed overseas in the 2000s of uh, trying to take care of uh, families who were of deployed units because we sent units directly from overseas locations into Iraq. And so you had folks in Europe who don't know the language. Uh, you know, there's, you know, obviously there's some degree of, there's some degree of preparedness that those families had in advance to be able to deal with exercises, all that sort of thing. When we're talking about sending folks to war from an overseas location in a completely different theater, then there was that sense of, you know, what's going on? How, how am I going to take care of things when I know that I just absolutely cannot rely on my sponsor? And, uh, you know, you have dual service couples and all sorts of complicated things. So within the, a particular command, you had the need to address uh, some thorny problems specific to those who were stationed in that 
area of responsibility that the enterprise itself was not you know, like you can't treat them in the same way as the folks who are coming from CONUS. There's a, there is some value of you know, thinking about bottom-up change because uh, some of the human dimension things just work better there because you're more likely to know everybody within a, com- within a localized command and people can understand what, what works, what doesn't. How do you take what works in, in a couple of different locations and figure out a, a more enterprise-wide holistic solution is, is difficult. Yeah, because if you try to say, all right, at the enterprise level, we're just going to do it this way. Here you go and, and implement it. And then it gets to each locality with its own context. It just doesn't always work. If you were to say that there is a, a pro and a con for each each one, is there patterns? Have you seen patterns when you look, when you're evaluating top-down, bottom-up change? Is there, you know, a reason why, you know, obviously you're, you clearly think that a lot of times when the human factors, people problems involving bottom-up solutions tend to be positive. What is a downside to the, the bottom-up method? Well, it's not so much a downside to the bottom-up, but there are definitely times when you need the top-down. If the army is in the middle of a real no kidding crisis of a human dimension variety, then there's got to be top-down response. And my, my favorite example of this came in the, sexual, in the wake of the sexual harassment crisis, because there, part of that was born from the, uh, the stigmatizing of victims, okay, which was clearly wrong. So, and, uh, so we, I was in a four-star command, this was overseas, and uh, we had Armed Forces Network, which was a terrific vehicle for command information that we don't have in the continental United States, unfortunately. But you gotta miss miss those commercials, though. <laughs> the AFN commercials <laughs> derailed. But the four star decided almost immediately that he was going to get onto Armed Forces Network and deliver a direct message to the force. This was an on-in-your-face kind of a message where the camera was completely zoomed in so that his face was fully filling the screen. He could see the blood vessels operating in his, in his face. He was definitely expressing anger when he, when he made this pointed message about this behavior is not tolerated. So, you know, any localized efforts to deal with that particular crisis would probably have not been as successful in that particular case than having the commander deliver the 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 no kidding this is not acceptable you know the, the time for the commander to come forward and put the hammer down unfortunately you know you would like that to be the case you know you'd like to see that more often <laughs> or in, in a lot more uh, different uh, problems, but it can't, you know, that doesn't work for everything. If the situation is one that could be handled locally or could be handled a little bit closer to the, to the specific problem or whatever, then that's better off because you want, um, you want the, the people who are most invested in a particular situation to be involved. And, uh, you know, the, 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 big argue, uh, the big message from above can get in the way of that if it isn't at the right time. It's an art. I mean, 
the the commanders at echelon have to know when is it best to you know to be a you know authoritarian be the be the message deliverer from the top and then when it's better to allow you know to trust in the chain of command we talk about mission command all the time but trust in the chain of command to do the right thing and then hold the hold the chain of command accountable when they don't it is an art i i I don't envy those <laughs> those leaders who have to make those decisions. As we kind of conclude this podcast, I wanted to ask one last question because I know in, in, in your work, you've talked about being a part of innovative change and how that looks a little different than top-down, bottom-up. It's, it's, it's a different idea. How would you encourage stakeholders in any particular issue to look for ways, or is there any characteristics of innovative change that you would highlight for people who maybe want to be a part of something to help improve their circumstances? I should first start with what do we mean by innovation? Because uh, it's a little bit different than bottom-up change. Okay, bottom-up change uh, sometimes is like what we may be talking about is a simple process improvement or, you know, something that can be fixed locally that doesn't really change the way that we do business, but makes it better. We tell our war college students, and I'm sure that uh, this is a common message across the army that, uh, you know, we have, we have uh, people in leadership positions because we expect them to improve organizations at Echelon. You know, we expect you to go forth and look for, leave the organization better than you found it kind of a thing. Now, innovation, that is a disruptive change. That's where we're taking how things are done now. If it's not working right, then it, it's not enough to fix it by incremental change. We need to kind of transform it. We need to we need to blow it up and start over, perhaps. But that's a hard thing to do, even if you're a high-ranking military officer. This innovation is really, really hard. Because sometimes disruptive change can have all sorts of uh, consequences with it that nobody expects. And uh, we are naturally a conservative type of an organization. We like to ensure that we operate with uh, predictability, with reliability, you know, this, these are very, very important values. We need to be, we want to be counted on to be able to do the mission. So then when it comes to disruptive change, if we're basically putting that mission at risk in the process of trying to do this transformational thing, it's going to be hard. That doesn't mean that we don't want to do it, but it means that it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of persistence. Um, the key, I think, is is that uh, you know, once a problem has been clearly defined and expressed, that cannot be fixed in an incremental fashion, then that's where you know innovation comes to play. Again, the localized solution or the experimental solution or try something is uh, is is a good approach to do that because if you can. If uh, uh, people can come up with a proof of concept for something or demonstrate that there is a better way to do things through a technology, through a new process, through getting rid of a process that doesn't work anymore, you know, those of us who work in a kind of a deal with the large bureaucracy would love to get rid of some old processes. I mean, it'd be a great thing. But anything that can be done as like a pilot or an experiment or something like that, that's that's disruptive, but still can kind of lead to a feasible 
and acceptable solutions, we need to encourage people to go ahead and, and do that, you know, as long as we're careful not to disrupt the mission, or at least not disrupt the mission in, a, in an unacceptable fashion. The next problem after you get the pilot done is how do you scale it so that you can spread it across, uh, you know, get, get that bottom up energy going. Yeah. And <laughs> that is where we're at right now. Um, in, at Partners in Promise, we have observed the Navy has put on a pilot program recently in support of our military families who have children in special education by providing them special education attorneys. So we're excited to track that program to see how it goes and see how just what you're saying and how, how is this possibly scalable to help benefit more and, and look at the problem and see what it is. And, you know, obviously <laughs> we, we know that they already did define some of the problems and we're excited to see how the solutions pan out for families and hear what they'd have to say. You know, I like to give the guests an opportunity to add anything that we didn't get to cover as we close, but I, I thank you so much for joining us today and to, and uncover some of these topics um, about change and how we might be able to see outcomes that we're just so hoping for as family members who are just looking to support our children and our families as we support our service members. Is there anything else, Dr. Calvin, that you wanted to share with us today? Yeah, I think uh, from a communication standpoint, one of the things that we tend to do, you know, you, you were talking before about how we anticipate stigma or anticipate uh, being ostracized or whatever. It can cause us sometimes if we're trying to speak truth to power to take a negative approach to it, like uh, it, it, like you go in with you know, sort of on the attack. And that is precisely the opposite of what people want to do. I think one of the mistakes that we make sometimes is that we go into, we approach change from a position that we're not assuming the best intentions of the other party. And more often than not, like I've, I've, I've kind of been indicating, the, uh, the military has a lot of conscientious people who want to ch change and want to fix things, but they need to be engaged at the proper level. And, and if, we're, if we aren't careful and we're, you know, we, we come across as being aggressive in the wrong way and put our, who should be our friends on the defensive, then we might make it more difficult for ourselves. So as a rule, I would, I, I always suggest that we approach any sort of a situation like this, assuming the best intentions of the other party. And there's, a, there's, there's always a room to find agreement and, and build collaboration if we do that. Well, thank you so much for giving us some insights into how the enterprise of the military might be thinking through some of these issues that really helps us as family members access you know, part of these processes. So I really thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about the research and work that Dr. Galvin has uh, performed, we're going to link to that in the show notes and as well as links to his podcast and some other references that we made throughout the show. If you would like to share your disruptive story, please email Partners in Promise by sending us a message at info at partnersinpromise.org. Thank you all. If you are experiencing feelings of shame as a result of stigma, know that you are not alone. There are resources available to you. 
This could look like contacting your military inspector general in case of systemic issues or seeking free counseling services via Military OneSource online or by calling them at 800-342-9647. Want to share your disruptive story? Contact us at info at or visit us on our website at thepromiseact.org.